Hello, greetings and salutations. Welcome to the podcast that looks back at albums, movies and video games to ask anyone for seconds. I'm your host, Dave. The nights are drawing in now and everything is just getting a tad depressing. Well, weather-wise, anyway. This week, we're going to be covering an album which made headlines. You've got mail. Uh, what? That That's a bit weird. Just received an email. Obviously, on our um, anyoneforseconds at gmail.com email. Looks like it's from a fan of the show. And... Oh, it's the awesome Twitch streamer type person, Rocksmore. I wonder what this says. Blah, blah, blah. Stop ruining my streams. Okay. Ah, here we go. From what I can tell, he wants me to cover a Pink Floyd album. I mean, that is pretty on brand for him. Let's just keep reading. Uh, Oh, okay, that's nice of him. He's actually picked one for me. 1983's The Final Cut. Wait, I'm still recording. Um, I'll fix it in the edit. It'll be fine. No one will ever know. Guess I won't be covering that amazingly controversial album after all. Oh, well, never mind. Hope I don't delete this. Oh, too late. No one's ever going to know. This week, we're going to be covering 1983's often overlooked, sometimes forgotten, Pink Floyd album, The Final Cut. Brezhnev took Afghanistan and Begin took Beirut. Galtieri took the Union Jack. Maggie, over lunch one day, took a cruiser with all hands, apparently, to make him give it back. Why this one? Well, I think I'll let Mr. Fancy Pants Twitch streamer Roxmore himself explain this one to you. Over to you, sir. The Final Cut, Why It Isn't Poo, by Joe Hartley, age 42 and a third. The 1983 album was all but a Roger Waters solo album. There is a clue in the subtitle, a requiem for the post-war dream performed by Pink Floyd. Plus, if you look at the personnel list in the liner notes, it showed that Richard Wright was no longer on board. In fact, this was the first time most people knew that Richard had indeed left, or as in fact it transpired, was forced to agree to leave after the wall concerts. But Roxmore, I hear no one saying... Are you not talking it down by pointing all this out? No, I don't think so. Putting the actual players to one side for a moment, we should look at what made a Pink Floyd record at the time. After the success of Dark Side of the Moon, subsequent albums had had a concept attached, however flimsy you may have thought them. Roger Waters had taken it upon himself to make sure they did. Why? Well, speculatively, I think it's because it's easier to write a lyric with a specific topic in mind. This had accumulated into the wall, Waters' magnum opus. So even though the final cut was initially an album to put music unused from the wall with movie versions of some of the songs, the material he was writing started to have a thread running throughout and he felt it should become a standalone album in its own right. So we have a concept. Okay, it's not a laugh a minute, far from it. Waters, with the frustrations on the compromises he felt he had made during the wall's film production, his divorce and what he saw the Tory government doing at the time, 
He felt angry with what he saw in Britain and had things he wanted to express. Very angry things. From the Falklands conflict to the emerging me culture and the open xenophobia that prevailed throughout British culture, none of it was out of bounds. Sonically, Pink Floyd have always pushed the quality of recorded music. From experimenting with multiple speaker setups for their live concerts as early as the late 60s, through to the craze of quadraphonic speakers on home hi-fis during the 70s. This is why their back catalogue sounds so good reissued in 5.1, because of their insistence on sonic quality. The final cut was no different. This featured Q-Sound, which was a way of capturing sounds the same way as the human ear. The beginning of the album, this is starkly apparent as you hear cars drive past you on the right-hand side. All of the sound effects were recorded using this, giving a widescreen effect not heard before on one of their albums. There is also a cast of extra musicians that helped, but there was during the wall, with a lot of them being uncredited. Pink Floyd have used other musicians and composers in the past with varying degrees of success. They all give the music an added flair. It's almost as if Pink Floyd were the sum of many parts all along. Oh, and a shout out to Raphael Baker Street Ravenscroft for their blistering saxophone throughout the album. The playing. The rest of the band had been marginalised by Waters' controlling vision for the album, but David Gilmour's playing, where he could, sounds amazing. There's definitely a harder edge that had been missing for most of the latter part of the 70s, probably to do with his frustration. The session players are all top quality players and the orchestrations were done by the sublime Michael Kamen. Also, Nick Mason stated that he thinks the drum sounds on this album may be his favourites of the ones they did. I highlighted the tensions there within the band at the time. Well, they were mainly between Roger and Dave. Mason had done his drum tracks early in the recording and was able to immerse himself in his first love of race car driving and collecting. David getting so angry with Waters' vision that he insisted that his own name been taken off the production credits. But that is one of the factors to a great Pink Floyd album. Creative disagreements. And there's plenty of those here. Okay, visual elements. With Hypnosis, Pink Floyd's creative visual partners up to and including Animals album, being jettisoned before the wall, Waters gave the job of the photography to his then-brother-in-law and put the cover together himself. There is a hypnosis feel, but it's lacking. But then again, apart from the caricatures in the inner cover of the wall album, that itself wasn't visually appealing. It may have become iconic, but I'd argue it's the hammerite of covers does exactly what it says on the tin. Now, it would be remiss of me not to mention some of the questionable parts of the album which Waters has a tendency to continue into his solo work. He uses some language which, even at the time, is questionable, notably referring to Japanese as nips. Now, he's taken the role as a narrator for the album, like The Wall, and this is to reflect the ingrained racism he saw in society at the time, but I don't think he needed to use it. Personally, I think it was a lazy way of expressing it, and I do not condone its use at all. I think it's better parodied in the song Not Now, John, the penultimate track, which is clear is taking a swipe at lazy British workers. I would understand anyone who sees this as the stumbling block they couldn't get over. It's definitely clumsy. Also, speaking of vocals, David Gilmore is relegated to one song, and that is Not Now John. The album would definitely have been better more David Gilmore vocals, but I don't think David could have brought himself to sing some of the lines. So the element's there for a Pink Floyd product, but does it deliver as a whole? Well, there is a journey, musically. The album is dynamic, it ebbs and flows well. As I stated before, sonically, it's the best one up to then, and I think Roger really does get across his anger and frustrations clearly, and well, for the most part. If you like the anger of the Animals album, and the concept of the wall with crystal clear sonics, 
delivered with bristling anger and jagged guitar solos, then get your ear goggles on and give it a listen. If you stop listening at the end of the Barrett era, after the Wish You Were Here album, or find Roger Waters stuff tedious or overblown, then steer clear. Whatever I say won't change your mind. Otherwise, fill your boots, John. Oh, skip when the Tigers broke free. That was added during a later issue. You'll thank me. A compelling essay, I'm sure you'll agree. Seeing as the bulk of the context was included in that essay, we won't be needing a context dump. Sorry, Context Dump fans, it'll return next week in fine shape. I guess the only thing to do now, really, is to ask that immortal line that is handed down over the generations. Anyone for seconds? For everyone's reference, I'm going to be revisiting the 2011 remaster, okay? If it's not tough, just deal with it. This time, we're going to try something a little bit different. We're not going track by track. What? Just go with me. It'll all make sense as we go. So what are my initial thoughts on the album? I originally listened to the album when I was a mere 17 years old, when I began to explore the weird, varied worlds of Pink Floyd. Originally, I felt it to be a weaker album than its predecessors, and definitely paled in later works that I was already aware of. Something seemed... well... off. Upon later discovery of me finding out that it was effectively a Roger Waters solo piece... Given that I hadn't heard Walter's solo work at this point, I pretty much wrote this album off. I really didn't want to know back then, so why now? Well, I love Walter's solo works such as Radio Chaos and Amused to Death, and I feel like now that I'm older, and with a little bit of understanding from our dear Mr. Roxmore, now's a good time as any to revisit such a divisive album. So, 2020 Dave, have you warmed up to it at all? Well... This is certainly not quite the follow-up people were expecting after the triumph that is, well, for me anyway, The Wall. The final cut sees Pink Floyd effectively become Waters' backing band, with very little compositional input from the other members of the band. With such a commanding force like Waters at the helm, we can really hear the difference this makes to their overall sound. Right off the bat, we're met with a brass chorus and a solo melancholic Waters asking, what have we done? Compare this to, say, how... The Wish You Were Here album starts, with a low hum of Mason's Hammond organ, slowly building to the band kicking in, and begin an instrumental odyssey. You can really hear the difference. That's not to say that it's drastically different at all, because you still do get David Gilmore's soaring guitar melodies bleeding through the mix, which really do drive you home into familiar territory. What you do get is an album that, surprisingly, is pretty good. Yep, I went there. Why only pretty good? Well, I just honestly think it suffers from not being as good as its predecessors. If it were released as a fully-fledged Roger Waters solo effort, then it may have gone done better with me, and most likely the public as well. That's not to say it's bad, because it's not. It is a sterling album that just unfortunately happens to have the Pink Floyd name on it. With the Pink Floyd name attached, there's a certain style and sound people expect that you just don't get with the final cut. What you do get is a fantastic first solo album by Waters that just happens to feature Pink Floyd. You get the trademark sarcastic Waters lyrics denouncing war in all of its forms, the abuse of power of those in a position of authority, with all of the emotion and delivery you expect to come to expect from him. He pulls all of the right punches while still managing to not become too overbearing. 
as can be the case in some of Pink Floyd's tracks. The songs themselves, though, are very strong. In fact, I'd argue that, brace yourself here, are some of Floyd's best. While they may not be as sprawling as, say, Echoes, they are tightly arranged, played with precision, while still managing to have their own character, with enough space to breathe and flow together as a concept album. The band themselves are in fine form, given how much bickering went on during the recording process. Nick Mason is tight on the drums and percussion. Rick Wright does a fantastic job on keys, giving that he didn't really have to, seeing as he technically wasn't part of the band at this point. Gilmore, despite not loving some of the tracks and quoted as saying, if they weren't good enough for the wall, why are they good enough now? Still puts in a great performance on guitars, with the guitar solos being some of his strongest work in the Floyd back catalogue. Even Gilmore's one vocal appearance on the album, within the track Not Now John, are very, very strong. It's amazing that everyone is in such fine form despite tumultuous circumstances. Album highlights include The Hero's Return, which is the most 1980s Floyd track that I have ever heard. It's an aural soundscape that is just beautiful. It needs to be heard. Believe me, words can't do justice as just to how 80s that damn intro is. The Gunner's Dream is another standout track with an absolutely amazing saxophone solo that brings tears of joy. The most obvious standout track being, of course, Not Now John, which is eerily reminiscent of Young Lust from The Wall. With trademark storming riffs and Gilmore and Waters trading blows via vocals, it's not hard to hear why it was released as the album's only single. We have to move on to now what I didn't like. Why is this album only great? What does 2020 Dave think now that 17-year-old Dave dismissed? Does he share the same thoughts? Well, no, I don't. For me in 2020, it's the fact the album does feel a tad bloated at times. What do I mean by this? Although it's an album that's only 43 minutes long, I feel like there's some extraneous stuff that wasn't really needed. Within this, there is a fantastic 35-minute album begging to come out. However, if anything was cut from the album, I feel that maybe it could detract from the concept. I could do without the track One of the Few, but again, this is called back later on in the album, within another track. I could definitely do without When the Tigers Broke Free, though, as it stands out like a sore thumb to me. Now, I know it was used in the war movie, and yes, it fixed the concept of being anti-war, but for me anyway, I could do without it. A stronger performance as Water gives, along with the male voice choir, it just feels like padding. Maybe they should have kept it as a single only. The main thing that only makes it great and not fantastic is that it's just, as I keep mentioning, it's not a Floyd album. I know I keep repeating myself, but it is true. As a solo's Waters effort, it stands up against Amused to Death as one of his best works to date. Its witty, scathing political commentaries is why I love Waters' work. But as a Floyd album, not so much. That's the trouble. It's been labelled as a Floyd album, which it really, really isn't. Much like Chinese Democracy is by the Axl Rose Band and not Guns N' Roses, the final cut is a water solo piece, and to not call itself is such a huge disservice given how radically different sounding it is to the rest of the Pink Floyd oeuvre. This is an album that demands to be heard, as it has been cruelly forgotten about. 
in this day and age. Its message is still as poignant as ever and is indeed a cut above the rest. Do you agree? Disagree? Do you think that the Live 8 performance by Pink Floyd was a tad overrated? Why not let us know? Head on over onto Twitter at AnyonePodcast to keep the conversation going. We're also on Facebook. Search for us, you'll find us. Longer considerations and rambles can be sent via email to anyoneforseconds at gmail.com. Don't forget to leave us a like, rating, review on your podcast platform of choice as it helps us grow the podcast and reach a larger audience. Huge shout out to Joe, aka Roxmore, for taking part in and inspiring today's episode. Why not go give him a follow on Twitch, where he regularly streams all kinds of awesome stuff at twitch.tv forward slash Roxmore. Or go give him a follow over on Twitter as at Joe underscore Roxmore. Tell him anyone for seconds sent you. I think this time we'll leave you with a snippet from The Hero's Return. Check out this awesome 80s sound. Thanks again. Stay safe. You got this. <laughs>